times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your embodied guide, Laura Redmond, and I am so honored today to have on my show Gail Karen Young-White, who I had the incredible occasion to take a workshop with, Um, David White, her new husband, and Gail offered an incredible workshop here in Portland that I was a part of about five or so months ago, and I want to introduce her formally. Gail Karen Young-White is a catalyst for human and organizational development. Gail has a rich consulting background with both corporate and nonprofit clients and was in the process of becoming a monk when she became an executive instead. Gail took on the role of Chief Culture and Talent Officer at the Wikimedia Foundation until early 2015 when she decided to return to private practice. Her clients have included McDonald's Corporation, Kaiser, Permanente, Yale University, Ernst & Young, and many others. Gail was born in the Philippines to Chinese parents and raised in the United States. She carries a multicultural perspective, an adventurous spirit, and a deep commitment to expanding human freedom. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I wanted to tell you this because when you were appearing in Portland with your now husband, David White, I had studied with him at Royal Roads Academy. Delighted. I had not known that before. Yeah, and I saw the promo for the name of our workshop, which was Half a Shade Braver, and I thought to myself, this is so exciting that this will be in Portland. I signed up immediately, thinking that that day would be a minimum of 500 people. Like I was picturing mm-hmm. myself in a room with so many people. And when I got there, David's having a cup of coffee, saying hello. And I go upstairs, and there you're standing with your cup of coffee. And I look, and I see a few chairs. And I feel like it is like a gift from the universe that I don't even know I'm getting because I realize we are going to be small. And this group was probably 12 participants and you and David, and I got so much from that day. I have thought about it a lot. I can't wait to continue the conversation around how to become a half a shade braver, but you really made me understand prejudiced in a way that I had never understood it, thinking in my own mind that I was in no way a prejudiced person. And then you taught the most interesting angle to see the other side of basically the question that you refuse to ask yourself, which becomes the lack of compassion and thus the prejudice. So thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful to that understanding. And I want to open just with sort of seeing what you are feeling today with the notion of a half a shade braver. 
Yeah, what I, you know, I'm going to borrow, it's, if I say it's handy having such a quotable husband, and, a, and mm-hmm. I like the frame, yeah. half shade braver, it's, it's a line from one of his poems, mm-hmm. and it, it has to do with a particularly merciful way of looking at bravery. What I appreciate about that is that um, it doesn't have a set point, you know, it's not half a shade braver than someone else, and it's, you know, half a shade braver than you were, but that that past, you know, who you were, you know, one of the things I'm recognizing about myself right now is that um, I am, a, as a permeable being, as many of us are, um, our circumstances change from day to day. There are some days that I feel more resourced. The sun is shining. I've had some beautiful time with David coming down and visiting my family and my now six-month-old niece. Um, so today is a day I'm feeling particularly resourced. And there are other days that I don't feel that way. There are other days when it feels harder to get up, when I look at the news and cover my eyes, and um, I am bewildered at both the individual, the, the localized, and then the, the systemic and large-scale challenges that we're facing on pretty much every level. And sometimes half a shade braver is half a shade from where I am right now, which is very real resource, and half a shade braver is also sometimes like in a dark wintry day when the sun has set at 4 o'clock and um, another, yet another shooting has occurred. Sometimes it's half a shade greater than that. So it's it's both relevant and absolute because it is setting the bar a bit beyond yourself. It's setting the bar um, uh, towards a place that's achievable that you can step towards. Um, It's also sort of a graceful place to move. Well, I remember you said in the workshop that we shared something about, you know, when you wake up, just begin. And and I think so much of the work that you offer in leadership, humanity, and female empowerment is based in the model of mindfulness, really. It's, it's a, it might be a different way in, but it seems to me to all end up with that same root of mindfulness leads the way to, you know, so many things. What, what, would, what would you say about that? I talk to a lot of leaders about this, and I see that nothing happens without your attention. And that's a, a quote from a teacher of mine named Linda Cassera, um, who just, was just keenly aware of, of the need to shape and hold attention. Um, we live in the midst of an inordinate number of distractions, I've got a very good friend named Tristan Harris, who's part of a, a movement called Time Well Spent. And he talks about the attention economy um, and how a lot of our devices, I'm a technologist, I'm a geek, I love technology, I love um, what's evolving in that space, and I'm aware of the ways that it creates both an incredible level of access and an incredible um, diversion of attention. And I think that a lot of great leaders um, have been masters about how and when and what they put their attention on. And so there's, there's this piece around um, mindfulness, attention, presence, that really has to do with the, bearing, the ability to bear down on something that matters to you, um, which doesn't mean closing yourself off to everything else. I think that there's a real asset, um, at least in terms of the way I'm built, in terms of being permeable and letting other influences in. Um, but there's also a real call to be able to place your attention on someone or something, just like in this time together, my attention is here and on you. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference 
in terms of how I listen to your questions, it makes a difference in terms of my openness to what comes to me if my attention is on you and not also checking my email, staring out the window, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, and then thinking of applying that sort of listening and being present to other aspects of the life that we each get to live, what a different magnification of reality comes from that choice. Mm-hmm. One and of the sometimes things- choice and sometimes it's not, right? Like it's, it's, it, it, how do we can become increasingly more choiceful, half a shade more choiceful is as much a paradigm that's relevant to us as half a shade braver. And what happens if we combine that, right? What is it worth being brave about? I think that piece of discernment is really necessary, like uh, for the sake of what? is a question that I often find myself asking because it really helps ground me in what I'm, what's worth being braver for, what's worth having my attention. It helps pull me out of my own tendencies towards unconsciousness, which we all have. And I think there's a lot of grace around that. I think about Rumi's, um, you know, you must, uh, don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you want. Don't go back to sleep. And it's this beautiful rhythm in his poem, this exhortation to um, stay awake because it's so hard. You know, it's part of the nature to sort of like fall asleep and reawaken. It's part of why we have the experience so often of um, learning something again. Shouldn't I learn this five years ago? Oh, look, here it is again, and it comes to us in different forms. But part of that paying attention is also recognizing when something comes to us in a different way, in a different form, and requires us to um, respond, not just react, but respond to it a little bit differently. So what is your what? What would you say is your what? um, Part of the way I notice my what is what I really love doing. I've been working with more activists lately. I just finished a week of facilitating with a group called the Roddenberry Fellowship a few weeks ago. And Gene Roddenberry, who founded Star Trek, um, his his foundation created a wonderful fellowship where they invited um, activists in a bunch of different fields, social justice, women's human rights, uh, environment, et cetera, to, um, to put themselves forward. And then they offered both financial and um, leadership support. And I really loved working with these activists because they helped keep me in touch with what matters, what are the larger scale issues at play. And it also keeps me in touch with the stories of people who are um, engaged in making a difference, you know, in very different ways. So I get very alive when I'm exposed to a diversity of thinking and approaches to systemic challenges. So for the sake of what, it's like partly I keep myself grounded and sane, you know, both for the sake of my family system, but also for the sake of the people I serve who tend to be on the front lines doing really difficult work in challenging areas where there are no easy answers. So that's, that's something that really keeps me alive. In your own story, when do you recall being motivated towards activism? You know, I was joking a little bit when I was working at the Roddenberry Foundation that it might have been influenced from Star Trek, but it's not too much of a joke. Um, <laughs> because it was very cool to see a science fiction show as a, as a, as a geek teenager and painfully shy that, um, that you had a Russian on the bridge. And um, Michelle Nichols with Uhura on the bridge is an African-American woman. Um, so even though there were all sorts of gender tropes and stereotypes and stuff that were played out there, Gene Roddenberry had a vision of equality. And I think being an immigrant also 
influence that, you know, coming in, feeling a little bit outsiderness, earnestly wanting to belong, looking for place. I was obsessed with Anne of Green Gables as a child, and I think I just loved the notion that this, this little redheaded um, orphan belongs somewhere. So coming to this family, that too, as an immigrant, um, looking for belonging, really being interested in, in science fiction, but also um, learning and being sensitive to it, becoming aware that there's a lot out that was out there that was painful. And I don't know if I thought of it inherently as injustice yet. I just thought, um, like I remember reading um, Anne Frank. I'm like, this happens? Um, and it still amazes me that human beings are such, um, looking for the non, non uh, <laughs> I was about to swear there, um, that human beings are so amazingly horrible to one another. You know, it's it just, there's a part of me that, as much as I'm a psychologist and really spent a long time trying to understand why and how we do what we do and how change happens, it really astonishes me that um, people are just such shits of people. And yeah. so part of this activism comes out of this almost innocent, childlike bewilderment at um, at how people are with one another, especially how they perceive them as other and what we, and I include myself in this, what, how we treat people that we other is not really human. And so that activism, I think, really came, um, I don't know if I would have used the word activism, you know, even 20 years ago, but just came from a sense of, um, both a sense of, hey, this isn't right, and the sense that, oh, people can do something about this. Because I think you need both of those elements. I think you need both the recognition and the sense of agency. Because yeah. um, if you don't, if you think this is just the way the world is, which is certainly a mindset, right? Um, and it's an easy one to encounter. Cynicism is very easy right now. Um, you have to also have the corollary belief and also the examples out there that people do make a difference. And that's part of why part of my for the sake of is I love keeping myself in deep connection with people who I know and pay a great personal cost for um, choosing to engage. Well, you talk a lot about human freedom. And as you're talking right now, it feels like human freedom is another way to say belonging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, human freedom is, you know, it, it unconsciously, until it became conscious, of course, was a core value of mine. I, I didn't realize it until later, and it's the thread that runs consistently to um, why I got engaged um, in the Zen Buddhist communities, why I believe in Wikipedia. Um, so when I was Wikipedia's chief culture officer, the mission about making the sum of human knowledge available to everyone um, from anywhere for free was really meaningful because I believe that access to knowledge is a prerequisite for social change. And I believe that more than ever, especially in this area, era of, of fake news and um, misinformation, like being able to even know what's actually going on uh, in the world and having multiple perspectives because there isn't one truth, you know, um, is it, so important because it is about greater degrees of freedom. Like I think about leadership in some ways as um, being ex- able to exercise a, multiple, a multitude of different options in a given scenario um, and being able to, to have the discernment and wisdom to choose the right one. So it is about those, those degrees of freedom, but also for the sake of what, right? It's not freedom you know, to go out and, and um, it is, <laughs> it's not the freedom to go out and say drink, which is, or say whatever you want to say. I definitely believe in, in people's ability to do that, but I wonder about the greater degrees of freedom when 
things are conscious and not just unconscious. Because I think when things are conscious, and this comes up to um, being a psychologist, I think I was just so caught by how many of us are caught in cycles, and I've been caught in them, of playing out systems and stories unconsciously. Um, I think that's part of why it's so interesting in culture, because culture does also shape thinking in so many ways. Well, um, you're sort of... Behavior. Which is... I'm hearing almost another way of saying to make tensions more visible. Mm-hmm. Yes, to absolutely. make the con- the consciousness of all people's experiences. But I believe that leads the way to dissecting management of fear, because I think fear overrides maybe the agency or activist in some people because they. They feel the fear that overwhelms the desire to get involved. Absolutely. So talk um, about it, fear. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, so, it's fast, one of the fascinating things to me about fear is how fast it is. And by fast, I mean it's hitting your nervous system before you're conscious of it, right? Like, yeah. um, and, it, and, and, and it's transmitted. Sometimes I, I've said to leaders that I work with, the best thing that they can be in an anxious organization is a non-anxious presence. And it's like when an ant high, uh, you step across a line of ants and they all get stirred up and they're really passing it along. You know, fear very much is that way. And even though it's fast, it hits your nervous system and it's, um, it's going before you can really stop it, the mechanisms for working with it um, mindfulness, thoughtfulness, breathing, you know, both the somatic mechanisms and the um, uh, emotional and cognitive mechanisms, um, you can start to sort of daisy chain them together over time. It's that sort of conditioning of self um, that can begin to happen when you're so familiar and thoughtful about the way something's impacting you that you realize you don't have to believe all the things you think. You know, I got this, um, I have an autoimmune illness, a, a thyroid illness and what happens um, most of the time it's totally fine sometimes when it gets a little out of control what happens is that it short circuits my fight or flight system so I start having fight or flight responses to really inane things like hot water you know so it's interesting because it means it, it basically lowers the threshold of what I react with fear to and um, and in its own, if I hadn't had the years of meditation and I hadn't had the ability to like be with it, I um, I kind of shudder to think of what that might have looked like because it, it really um, illuminated illuminated for me that, that sanity is a, a a a beautiful but sometimes very thin line, and the ability to sort of like watch what I was thinking and be like, oh, I don't have to believe all the things I think. This is just arising and going away. Um, and I had a really illuminating moment when I had a really bad day where I just like gripped right here and watching it and the next day because my thyroid was more in and uh, in better functioning um, I was it felt like a great day nothing externally had changed except the level of the particular hormone in my body so it was really fascinating for me to grapple with fear that was a really intimate way of knowing it um, and, and, and having uh, a deep familiarity with the things that can really stir up um, I've come to really both respect fear and the need for it and that we have it at a, for good reasons um, and how ineptly it can be wired for facing the complexity of circumstances. Like, you know, I can feel fear 
at an existential level when my thyroid disease is up because of the uh, because of somebody handing me a too hot cup of tea, um, and I cannot feel fear at the extent, for example, of climate change, which is an existential threat because our bodies aren't wired to be um, reactive to um, the fear that happens over that kind of time scale or that that um, below the threshold of visibility there. So it's both a really interesting warning system for us to work with, and it's also not the most accurate. So what are the ways that we can manage it in ourselves and collectively manage it? Because you can't just manage it at an individual level. I think we think we can, and what I've come to is that we can't. Um, how do we collectively manage it so that we can focus on the, for the sake of what, you know, so that we can be that half-shaped braver? Um, whatever that looks like, so can, we can work with it um, and not just against it. And if we're spending well, all our energy managing our fear, that's exhausting too. So, um, so getting a little bit beyond that is really helpful. I think it takes a life of its own when people are directed by fear, anxiety, stress. Oh, yeah. um, those oh, yeah. those midbrain um, monsters will change your life if you let them and you must not. So the mindfulness goes back and back and back to the root, the seed, the, the way to cultivate all of this, which is so either instrumental for someone doing the activism work or individually. Because one of the notes I revisited today studying for our show was the line from our workshop that holding tension and polarity is compassion. So when we're yeah. thinking about fear, I go right to that line in memory of, of the power of that statement, because whether it is personal, um, your own private war within, or universal, as in outside of your own four walls, holding that tension is the doorway, and that is compassion. But I think compassion is more obviously absent than ever before in our world and within the human struggle. I mean, I see it so much in my office, and it's really important to talk about compassion if we're going to talk about fear. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the dynamic between the two of them, right? That's what fear does. It uh, Fear, depression, anxiety, all those are, are constrictive um, things that inherently limit your capacity for perspective. That's what they do. Um, in some, in an odd way, they, they create focus and attention, but not on those things that you want to create focus and attention on um, necessarily if you had some choicefulness about it. So there's a deep relationship between freedom and choice, um, fear, and in, in, in its own way, compassion as well. Um, and that sense of like, what are the different elements of compassion? And there's so many different kinds of and beautiful ways of working with it and definition of courses. Um, Influenced by Tama Chodron and her work on compassion. For me, it's it's really getting a sense of um, access to perspective. You know, what 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 else is valuable in a system? What do I what do I may not see? So for me, compassion is intrinsically linked to a deep knowing of my own blind spots mm. that I don't know. You know, that I don't know what's going on with somebody else that I have that I can ask and learn. You know, if I assumed by the arrogance to assume that I knew what was going on. Um, that's part of what keeps me out of compassion is that judgment and often unconscious judgment. And often unconscious judgment is so linked to fear. You know, we, we, we hold judgment of other people's situations, et cetera, 
and we hold contempt because we assume, because of the things we assume or that we don't want either in them or in ourselves. You know, I, I would like to wonder, though, out loud, what we don't know that we're blind to. Mm. I mean, that's the beauty of life unfolding and knowledge and wisdom and having an open vessel leads to infinite experiences of being shown your blind spots. Because I think everybody has blind spots. Maybe not the Dalai Lama, but where are where is anyone blind is a constant unfolding mm-hmm. and where are the blind spots more dangerous in some people than other people right like i think blind spots are going to be more important for people not more important let me put this one out um, i think a lot about scale right and, and power so there's this interesting intersectionality between um that power and blind spots like i think i could have afforded some more blind spots um when I was an individual contributor to an organization, and it was mm. much more detrimental for me to hold blind spots when I was more than an individual contributor to an organization. When, when there was a power element that I really did have decision-making authority that really significantly impacted in other people's lives. Um, of course, I have blind spots, but I think the consequences are graver in positions of authority um, where, where power becomes a significant variable in there. And so part of the reason that I like to work with leaders in whatever field they're in, um, activists and corporations, et cetera, is um, partly a sense of consequences. I would love for you to unpack that a little deeper in terms of experience, because I would like to understand it more uh, experientially, as you mentioned it, with the power struggle and where that would, where the blind spot would be visible later and then what the message would be through the visibility mm-hmm. ah, visibility and David talks repeatedly about this when he talks about being a leader is to choose to be visible and I was working with a, a colleague of mine who recently became a CEO and um, an old friend and it was funny because she was sort of there was a lot about the role that she wanted um, and that she's really good at, and I am really excited for her in this role, but there's an unintended consequence, too, of people um, watching her moves more, making interpretations about her, whether she says something or not. You know, if she is busy with her head down and thinking about an email she needs to write as soon as she gets in her office and walks by the front door without saying hello to everybody, she knows that she's got her head down and just needs to get to her cubicle and, and write her, her memo while she's still thinking about it. The office, you know, is much more likely because we make things up as human beings and think, oh my gosh, something's going on or she's ignoring me, you know, make it about something going on, make it personal, um, make a story about it, etc. And that tendency that people have gets exacerbated exponentially as you go up in organizational, even family levels, right? You know, you, it, it's, very, it's a different thing when the matriarch of a family is moody and unpredictable than it is if, like, you know, it's, it's an uh, off-to-the-side uncle or something. So there's something about that visibility and centrality that if, if she, if my friend, is not aware about the impact of her actions, has much larger consequences and takes a lot more energy to undo, you know. So if, if she's done this for a few days, for her to combat the impression that starts to become 
stagnant and systemic that she's unapproachable. Um, hmm. It takes a lot more to undo than, than, than being aware of it in the first place and being able to signal appropriately so that people know what sense to make of that set of behaviors. Um, and so that, that's a that's sort of consequence of visibility, um, leadership, um, and power. Now that gets exacerbated even more when um, she has no compassion for a direct report of hers. Now I'm taking this abstract, this example of abstract and not referring to something someone specific, but, you know, if, you know, if she were um, male and he had no, because he has a belief system from when he was a young man that what you do as a boss is that you're the first person in the office and you're the last person who leaves. So that's a, that's a inherited and somewhat beautiful belief, you know, that there's, there can be a lot of beauty in that belief that the boss does, um, is supposed to do more and be there first and leave last. I've certainly seen that in some CEOs. You take that belief and you start judging other people by it. So if they're not earlier there than you um, or as in there when you are and they leave later, that they're somehow irresponsible. So you take your own belief system, you project it outwards, you judge other people by it. It actually inhibits his ability to see other people clearly, and it starts reinforcing a dominant power structure. So say you've got someone in the office, and it could be another man who's got kids, and he's got a commitment um, because of how his father was to be at his kids' soccer games every Thursday evening at 4. And he's happy to come in early, but he's always going to leave Thursdays at 4. You know, so there you get these competing value systems. And if you're not wired or able to unwind them a little bit, see where each other's coming from, look at what the value of the work is, look at results, look at impact, look at other variables other than your conditioning, that world gets very narrow and you know, it, 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 it reinforces current systems in place. If that guy that had to leave every Thursday at 4 o'clock was a woman, you know, what does that start to, to reinforce about women? And, and so it's localized small decisions that actually end up being large-scale cultural constructs. Um, is that a little bit of what you meant by wanting me to untangle that? I went a little far down that particular path, and I'm happy to take a step back. No, that's exactly. In fact, I want to ask you, what are the options, both of, um, as the observer or the, the, I mean, ultimately, it would be so blessed if, if those that are at the height of their leadership positions could see the need to open the conversation up about that. But if that isn't happening or that is not now, what are mm-hmm. what are the options as the observer of the friend who's walking out with her head down, unaware or too stressed out to know? And what are the options with that horrible expectation in the position of female versus male in the corporate structure what are the options, knowing that that is accurate and true and needs to be taken down, but until then, what does one do? Um, I always like to try it by introducing more data into the system. So, you know, with, with going back to the example with my friend, you know, does she, does she know? Can she build in trusted filters? So as an executive myself, part of what I had were people around me who would tell me, you know, I believe very much in, in organizational systems with open data flows because I can't make the decisions. I don't, I'm only one person, right? And I could not figure out everything that was going on with everybody every day. Nor should I have to or need to, but I needed to have enough of a sense of courage to know what sort of the flavor 
of what was going on in the organization, what were the stories being told, not just about me, but other people. So for me, it was really important to have the kind of um, office where there were open data flows that were possible so that I would get feedback from people I trusted and I asked for it um, so that I could calibrate, you know, so I could... um, this isn't about not being inauthentic in any way, shape, or form. I just want to be very clear about that. But it's helping people read you right. You know, because they, they don't have access to what's in your head. Um, there's a great model out there called the Johari window. It's a great, like, I would encourage people to just kind of look it up. Um, but it just basically posits that there are, that it's just a consequence of reality, that there are things that you know about yourself that other people don't know about you which is obvious, and that's your, your, your move there is to disclose. And there are things that other people know about you that you don't know about yourself, which are blind spots, and it's an opportunity for them to give you feedback. And those two mechanisms, um, among others, are really important uh, to sort of fill out those blind spots. Um, the other thing that I think is so important is to learn where some of your unconscious uh, tethers are. And tethers is a term that I picked up from uh, a woman named Jennifer Garvey-Berger who's got two fantastic books on leading in complexity. But Jennifer um, talks about where you have unconscious um, sort of tethers that, that you apply to other people and making them conscious and realizing that other people have different tethers than you have. So for this particular uh, fake CEO example, you know, his whole, like, I show up to work first thing and leave last, that's an implicit belief that he's got about leadership, that he's like, good leadership equals this behavior. And he might have gotten it from his father, might have gotten it from his stepfather, he might have gotten it from his father because his father was lazy and didn't do that. You know, so there's all these different places he could have picked up that belief and then internalized it and then made it unconscious. And then made his judging other people, like, why is nobody in the office? I was like, why is nobody in the office? Why do they not work as hard as I do? So his definition of um, working hard looks like a very limited thing. Is there an opportunity, if I were working about a leader, to expand it? Well, what does working hard mean? So they go home at four, but you see them, you know, finishing all of their, their, they do all of their reports on time. You know, their actual, like, excuse, how do you start to stretch? First of all, make conscious that tether, that equals, and then start to stretch it. So that's one way of working with it. Um, and you can, do, you can start to do that um, if you're in the opposite position. So say I were a woman um, I, in that, on the other side of that relationship, feeling like I was being judged. Um, there's a great book titled Exit Voice to Loyalty. You know, you kind of have three options in really awful situations. Uh, you, can, um, you can leave. And in some cases, I've encouraged that because the power dynamics are such and the system is ossified and a person has so inoculated themselves from feedback or made it so dangerous for anybody to tell them anything that I don't think there's a way of moving through that. And I had to be very clear with that, with people about that, especially if they don't have a role in the organization where the structure will be able to back them up. So exit yeah. is absolutely one way. Um, voice is another one. Voice is, voice is when you can say to someone... If, I, if it were you, I would say to some, you something like, um, hey, John, I'm, I'm noticing that, um, or I could even say, so I realize that I go home at this hour every Thursday. Um, I have a commitment to my family to show up in this, and I have a commitment to work really hard. But I want to make sure that you know that even though this behavior may not look 
like I prioritize work as much. Here are some other behaviors that I'm doing that might not be as visible to you um, that, for me, are part of working hard. Um, I would love to get some feedback from you about whether I'm meeting your expectations or not as uh, in this role. So how do we make sure that those expectations are met and I can fulfill these commitments to my family? If somebody has a skill, because it's partly skill it's, and, and, and there may be other considerations in there, um, if the situation warrants it, that they can have that conversation with their boss, then that's a great thing. And some of the people I support is to help them have some of those difficult conversations in a way that's skillful. Um, sometimes skill isn't enough, and I just want to name that because you can go back to the other dynamic I talked about where there's power, where there's, um, where there's just immaturity on the part of one or the other party where some of those conversations aren't even possible, and it's often important to just name that. Um, but where, where there's a skill gap that can make a difference in terms of the ability to have those conversations, it's such an important conversation to know how to have. Um, yeah. That also, though, that, that, well, that takes me into the home life of all these examples, though, because mm-hmm. I think to myself, if that particular person at work is actually needing to learn to want feedback, to listen to what's being shared that is great, you know, great information with high value, mm-hmm. I am certain that that exact skill set would be successful at home and then back to the inward human plate of making that you know half a shade braver really starts inside of each person and then the benefit is so obvious at work or at home I often find that there is not an opening that so Mm -hmm. many are responding before they're hearing and they're not open to the growth curve of what may feel difficult, but is ultimately going to make you a more embodied, successful person. Mm-hmm. But the opening can seem so slight, if at all. That, to me, is the great challenge. And so in the work I do as an individual coach for people and families and couples is yeah. to find a language that is hopefully just interpretable by the individual. because. Yes. You know, that can be the great the great challenge in this hopeful scenario of feedback and giving an observation that is a great gift, even though it may be egoically bruising. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's where the ego work is also necessary. Like, you know, the, I often tell people, like, it's, it's difficult if somebody doesn't have very many load-bearing pillars. I wish you can remember where I got this concept from. Um, but, you know, some people at certain stages of maturity, too, are so tied to... Their um, their sense of self is still not particularly robust yet, and so when you give them feedback, it's a, it's, it's a um, it's a dissolution of self. You know, I think about my first breakup when I was in my teen years, right? I felt destroyed, you know, just like maudlin. So like it was really devastating. Um, now that I'm older, it's not that it would be. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be, it's not that I wouldn't be heartbroken, but I wouldn't be destroyed in the same way. You know, there, there are more load-bearing pillars available. Um, there's more life experience. There's, more, there's a more complex identity structure. It isn't so wrapped up in being in the approval of this one person, you know, whatever that, that load-bearing pillar is. So that sort of maturity really helps there. Um, and to your point, one of my deep sadnesses beginning my career doing leadership development in corporate America 
is that a lot of leadership development, which is human development, really, you know, we use this word leadership, and it's really sort of, it's a standard for human development, how to take multiple perspectives, how to be strategic, how to have difficult conversations, how to give feedback, how to, um, uh, um, you know, be grounded and, and be able to stay sane in the midst of complexity. That's really human development for me. And I got really sad that this was mainly a domain that got offered to, you know, especially back in the 90s, quote-unquote, high-potential leaders um, in organizations rather than, a, wait, how come we didn't learn these as foundational life skills? Um, and I think more and more people are starting to realize that there's a lot of different kinds of organizations teaching skills in different ways, um, whether it's relationally, but I still think that, that organizations are still the primary um, people who pay unless people do it themselves or on self-development trust personally for um, uh, organizations often provide funding and resources for people to be exposed to personal development experiences, which is funny because I'm not sure that that's necessarily the role of, I don't think it's the role of organizations to necessarily make people happy. I do think it's the role of organizations if they want their leadership to succeed to help them in that, um, which then implies human development. But, um, yeah. I mean, I think the organization has the opportunity to make the individual keenly accountable. Mm-hmm. And that would be a reason, I think, to bring way more of this into the corporate fold because there is no way that would not be a bonus for all involved. But the accountability is so interesting to me and in a world where, again, I go to mindfulness, but the accountability is just missing in so many instances that we're being publicly gagged with. But I'm certain mm-hmm. it's also happening in people's homes where there's just a fear-based lack of accountability. Um, so that would be one of my great wishes at large with the work of mindfulness and leadership. Um, I wanted to ask you, Gail, when you think about your humanitarian causes, and I know that's such a big passion for you, what would you say is, in your opinion, one of the main things right now that everybody should be more aware of because it is in the danger zone? What would be something you would name that is an obvious reflection of where more attention needs to be focused in the plate for a a more humanitarian life, world, and uh, individual experience? The first thing that pops to mind is that I think we have a real personal call to not be gullible. and because we're so exposed to so much and the capacity for discernment, and there's a level of, I'm, I still am pretty well connected to the tech space in San Francisco, and the, the level of uh, sharing uh, and social media and with the rise of, of these deep interactions, like I think about my niece that just got born, her interaction with technology will be far more enmeshed than it was for my generation just because of the consequence of of, of of, of where she'll enter and what she'll have kind of ubiquitously in the environment around her. Um, and, you know, I say this as somebody, my father got me a computer fairly young and I started to learn to code and I spent a lot of time online before there was a real internet, you know, when we had bulletin board systems and 
Um, and I grew up in substance on the internet, which I'm very grateful for, but Facebook wasn't around when I was in high school. Or, or, um, so we have a, a real obligation, I think, to um, develop enough discernment and sense of self to know, to be able to have a conscious, thoughtful relationship to those things, which is a really large ask. Um, and it has some, I think, unintended side, side effects, um, good side effects in terms of, I think, helping us be able to navigate um, uh, our own um, predispositions, our own biases, et cetera, if we have some capacity for discernment, like the ability to, to be in questions and in dialogue with different perspectives. I think it's one personal calling I would name early. Um, and, and when that, that's there... Um, I think then the ability to, to reach beyond that and say where, like, what are the stories in the world that are true and impactful and can I sense and see how they would actually impact me even though they feel very distant? Like, it, you know, I think that's very relevant when you're looking at some of the larger scale tragedies of our time, whether it's Parkland um, or uh uh, Russian air interference in elections, not just the U.S. election, but globally. It's like, oh, that doesn't really affect me. Understanding our fundamental permeability is, I think, a really important um, element of developing and growth. And I think that compassion and care about things, that extends as an outreach as a consequence of that. You know, there's less of an activist um, just because it's like, oh, there's that horrible thing happening over there. I think part of being a responsible activist also means realizing that it's not over there. It's right here, you know. It's, it's what, it, what I interact with. It's how I act in my home. It's not like I've got, you know, pity for some poor person in Kuala Lumpur just because I feel like I should or there's a social um, reason to do it. It's realizing the deep inter- interconnectedness between their situation and mine. Um, yeah. 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 Definitely. You said the word gullible. What what would be your explanation of the difference between gullible and vulnerable? Um, I think gullible populations are vulnerable. Um, I'm gullible. So I mean, just as uh, like historically, um, the ability to play a prank on me by telling me something was just like, oh, what? Those animals really exist? Okay. Um, but it's 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 a cute thing when it's being cranked up. It's a bad thing when I'm resharing something. There was some some something that Pope Francis supposedly said about Donald Trump, and I remember resharing it. And then I remember reading up on it about being fake news later. And I'm like, wow, I can't. And I'm pretty discerning. I we all like to think we're discerning, right? That's the dangerous part. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like. How interesting is that, right? Where, and this is part of the reason that I've got a few people on my social media feed who have very radically different political perspectives than I do. Um, my friend Bill Adams is great with this, with me, you know, we will get into it. And I love it because I trust him and I love him. So even when I radically disagree with him um, and we dig it out, I trust his love and perspective. And so it's like, huh, okay, what am I not seeing that has him believing what he believes about this thing? Because a little bit to that perspective and, and has to shape braver thing too and, and the need for um, compassion. But how do we have a relationship that really can tolerate that, that level of disagreement? My level of interestingly, I have some family members with whom that capacity for disagreement was actually much less 
open. It was a little scary for me around the time of the election. I'm like, oh, let's just shut that conversation down. So I have to be really aware of my own tendencies to not want to engage, to not, um, uh, to not be compassionate, to not have the same question for a relative about, hey, what's he seeing that I'm not that has him thinking of this? So, you know, these, these, you're asking me these questions that are deeply personal around scalability and capacity for relationships, et cetera. I call myself an imperfect feminist, um, <laughs> partly because in the Wikimedia world, um, you know, as you take up certain things, and there are some days when you're just like, oh my gosh, the trolls on the internet are too much. Uh, not, not, my, not my problem today. You know, I could have gotten stuck in a Gamergate, like, in the blink of an eye. And, um, and there, are, there are times that I really chose not to because I think that we really have to also pay attention to our own capacity to engage. So I call myself yeah. an imperfect feminist because some days I'll be out there and um, carrying a torch forward, and other days I'm like, yeah, I'm just tired today, and that's okay because yeah. I am not interested in totally burning myself out on that, fighting trolls on the Internet. Um, there's a great XKCD cartoon about... I'm staying up because someone is wrong on the internet. There's always someone wrong on the internet. There's, all, there's, there's an unending level of stupid. Um, so I think we have to be very thoughtful about where we engage. But I think we also have to really be thoughtful about what we consume. And news, and this goes a little bit back to attention economy, being savvy about that and less gullible is not okay. It's, it's a cute thing when I'm gullible about the existence of a fake animal, right? Um, it's a lot less cute when I think that um, some guy who has a pizza parlor is the head of a Muslim ring or something. You know, it's, 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 it's the consequence. It goes back a little bit back to what I believe about leadership. Our, our thoughts and our the consequences can be dangerous. So I, I really want to be thoughtful about what kind of informational diet I am and, I'm, and am, I, am I propagating it? Because people do trust me as a relatively sane news source. So how can I um, make sure that I and in alignment with perspective and not also exacerbating, like, uh, exacerbating situations. I think we're very much in a fight for nuance right now. Um, yeah. I don't like mm-hmm. seeing, you know, we, we're using a lot of broad brushes, and there should be a, a I believe in ethics, I believe, like, I believe in, I believe in, <laughs> I believe in you know, Nazis are bad. But, so that's a very, I'm going to say, I think there's some thresholds in there um, in very broad thresholds. And yet, in the midst of that, um, I can recognize even in myself the danger of using too many broad brushstrokes and, and really needing to fight for nuance. Well, you know, in our workshop, we talked a lot about managing polarity, which is what this is reminding yeah. me of, you know, where um, we... We've never been more conscious of the two sides, the two perspectives, um, and the underbelly of each is the trigger to both. That was one of the most phenomenal things that you all uncovered in the workshop was that the underbelly of each side is the trigger to both. Sorry, sorry. you just repeat that last your voice just flipped out for a quick second. Oh, that the underbelly of each side is the trigger to both perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, that just says why it can easily be a kabam and the balance of where to engage and where to become more informed or to work on your compassion individually. Yeah. 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 Like where... Um, 
I, I pay a lot of attention to what I'm triggered by because it usually points to something that's both important to me and where I have something major. Like I'm most likely to have a blind spot in the area that I'm totally triggered. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think triggers are triggers because they, exactly. and I they're little firecrackers. Exactly. And yeah. um, and they're not fun to go into, right? The, the, what, what normal people do and sane people do is they avoid the triggers because they're not fun. <laughs> um, so what is it to engage in a triggering conversation with somebody else who you trust to have the skill to be in a triggered conversation with you? That's a practice. Yeah, and that's a blessing. That's a blessing a and a blessing. practice. Um, And and then you know you're sitting across from someone who's half a shade braver. And Mm -hmm. um, I I would love for everyone to know, I'm I'm sad to say our time is coming to an end, but I want others to know how to work with you, how to follow you on social media. What is the way that they can stay connected to you? Um, I'm followable on Facebook. I often post there and um, Twitter. I'm Miss Gale on Twitter. And uh, David and I are doing more things together, which is a lot of fun for both of us. That's really exploratory territory for the two of us. Um, and it's a, it's a great um, way for our respective gifts to come into contact with one another. So we really, you know, what you were part of in Portland, and I'm so glad you were there. It's just an, expo- it's a, it's a, it's an exploration. We're trying to, like so many people, like we are in the midst of trying to figure out what our life together looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think we're doing a workshop together in San Francisco. We'll do another one together. We just did one in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and then we're off on a lot of travels this summer, but we might do one somewhere in Europe. So keeping an eye out for that would be good. And um, I hope it's the beginning of a series of collaborations. Um, and then I have a real curiosity myself for what I'm up to. So when I see that, I will certainly let you know. Like, I feel like um, I'm in the midst of another um, turning point and as David so beautifully says so great to have a quotable husband you know the next who you are is a stranger to you coming into your own life so there's a stranger that I'm still getting to know right now um, I just became um, we just got married in December so this year I think will be a really formative one a foundational one for our marriage but also foundational one for who are we together and then who are we separately in the construct of this marriage and, um, and part of this is you know, me living on Whidbey Island and living in a place I've never lived before. So there's a lot that's in flux. I really appreciate the question. And I just kind of giggle at it because I'm like, huh, you know, I've got a lot of curiosity about that question myself. Well, you and David make an incredible partnership as facilitators. I'm so excited about your marriage and congratulations. And closing question, I just want to know, do, are you saying, are you used to saying instead of, this is David White, this is my husband? <laughs> no, we were at a funny event um, where David was introducing himself as, as my husband, which is really adorable. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because we, we both have the, the personal and the private. It's also um, it's interesting for me to marry a public figure, so we're still we're very much in that adjustment um, and and enjoying it. It still does trip me up to say husband. They're like, mm. oh, like I'm traveling with my husband this summer, so I'm getting a little practice with it even right now. It's pretty irritating. Well, you make a beautiful, beautiful combo and couple. And thank you so much, Gail Karen Young White, for sharing this time with me. You are so welcome. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate how proactive you've been. I've enjoyed this conversation, really. Thank you 
for this time, um, and I'm looking forward to being in touch. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us again for new shows every month on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. We'll be right back. 